Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Welcome to week two of our series, Holy. What we're doing in this series is we're taking a journey through the biblical narrative to try and understand this word that for the most part, we really don't use except in religious settings. So we're seeking to find out uh, what does it mean and what does it tell us about the character of who God is? What does it mean for us as followers of Jesus? And so last week, what we learned is that holy is this biblical word that means unique and set apart. And while it is certainly correct and good to think of God as holy because of the creative power that he possesses, after all, he created the world and he sustains it. What's interesting is that the Bible also calls time, people, things, and places holy. And what we learned last week is that by this fact, or what we're supposed to learn from this fact, is that God's holiness is meant to be shared. That God's holiness does not separate us from him, but rather invites us to participate in his own holiness. It's a beautiful picture of the holiness of God drawing in and including us. But the thing is, and this is what I want to talk about in week two, is that the holiness of God has not always been understood in this way. It's not always been seen as this inviting thing. In fact, I want to invite us to look again at the story of Moses and the burning bush out of Exodus chapter three. Today's reading is from Exodus three, verses one through six. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Herod, the mountain of God, where the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. Then the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, and God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God your father, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Last week, what we noticed about this story is that the ground around the bush was holy because it was surrounded by God's presence. But that's really not all that there is to this story. Did you notice that God said to Moses, don't come any closer? And that Moses, in the presence of God, was afraid and he covers his face. You see, early on in the biblical story, the presence of God is seen as dangerous to an impure person. And so God's holiness is not presented to us at first as this inviting presence in which we can find comfort. At first, God's presence is understood as dangerous. Now, again, the metaphor of the sun picking up from last week might be helpful to us here. The sun from a proper distance, Uh, the sun is great and can be enjoyed, 
But if you get too close, the sun will actually destroy you. And this is exactly how God's holy presence is understood early on in the biblical narrative. And this, of course, has significant implications for how people interact with and participate in the holiness of God, particularly for temple worship. This had all kinds of implications for worship practices uh, for Israel. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God's holy presence dwelt. It was essentially where God lived. And the Israelites that wanted to worship, they had to go to the temple. They had to go to the place where God's presence was. And then we think of also the the priest who had to work in the temple. So even in the most holy place of the temple, there was this epicenter of God's presence called the Holy of Holies. And this presented a problem for the priest, for for them because they were working in such close proximity to the dangerous presence of God. Um, the priests would have been seen in much of our day as we talk about essential workers. Those folks were absolutely necessary to facilitate an essential part of life. And yet by virtue of their work, were putting themselves in danger. And so the question is, how could they fulfill their duties, be so close to the presence of God and not be in harm's way, not die from the presence? Well, the solution was, is that priests and others before entering into the temple had to first become pure. Now, there are two types of impurity that the Old Testament kind of works from and operates from. The first is moral impurity and the second is ritual impurity. Now, in the face of these impurities, you needed to become pure in order to enter into God's holy presence. So now being morally impure, we have a pretty good handle on that. We know what that means. And if you were morally impure, you had that you had maybe you had committed a sin and your sin needed to be atoned for. And that was all done through animal sacrifice in the sacrificial system that we see in the Old Testament. Now, ritual impurity is a little bit different. It's, it's different from moral impurity. Ritual impurity came from any contact that you had related to death. So it might have been, it might be diseased skin, maybe dead bodies, even some bodily fluids. That if you came into contact with any of these things, then you were considered ritually impure. Now, being ritually impure was not inherently sinful. It simply meant that you couldn't just waltz into God's holy presence. And so what God does is he, gave, he gives uh, Israel detailed instructions on how to become ritually pure in order to enter his presence. And the instructions are really detailed, and they probably come across, across to us as being a little bit overboard, right? Um, and the instructions mostly have to do with clean and unclean foods, uh, skin diseases, and bodily fluids. And there's some stuff in there that probably isn't great for the whole family, so we won't talk about all that stuff. Um, If this is of particular interest to you, you can read all about it in Leviticus chapters 11 through 15. Uh, I suggest that you probably do. Um, Doesn't make for great devotional reading, but is really, really interesting to enter into the world of the nation of Israel and how they related to God. Let me just give you one example uh, related to skin uh, diseases or skin issues out of Leviticus chapter 13. Uh, It says this, Now when a man or woman has a disease on his head or his beard, the priest shall examine the disease. 
If it appears deeper than the skin and the hair in it is yellow and thin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is an itch, a leprous disease uh, of the head or of the beard. Now, if the priest examines the itching disease and it appears no deeper than the skin and there's no black hair in it, the priest shall confine the person uh, with the itching disease for seven days. And then on the seventh day, the priest shall examine the itch. And if the itch has not spread and there's no yellow hair in it and the itch appears to be no deeper than the skin, he shall shave, but the itch he shall not shave. And the priest shall confine him for seven more days. And then on the seventh day, uh, the priest shall examine the itch. And if the itch has not spread in the skin and it appears to be no deeper than the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. But if the itch spreads in the skin after he has pronounced it clean, then he shall examine him. And if the itch has spread in the skin, the priest need not seek for yellow hair. That man is unclean. This is the word of God for the people of God, right? This is crazy. In fact, it goes on in a similar fashion for a total of 59 verses in that chapter alone, just dealing with issues of the skin. In fact, the whole section of Leviticus goes on in detail. Chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Can you imagine being a person with issues of the skin? Can you imagine being the priest in charge of judging all of that? And there seems to be, at least at first, in the biblical narrative, this apparent antithetical relationship between holiness and impurity. That if you are clean, you can worship. If you are unclean, then you can't. Whoa. You know, for a long time, the people of God lived inside of this framework always worried about whether they were clean or unclean, if they had sinned and become morally impure, an atoning sacrifice that needed to be made, if they had come into contact or eaten certain foods, got a disease, had certainly certain bodily discharge, even from perfectly normal things, then they had to worry about becoming ritually pure before entering the temple of worship. Because the modus operandi, the, the mode of operation for relating to the holiness of God was that my impurity puts the holiness of God at risk. That's the framework. My impurities puts the holiness of God at risk. And priests then put in a position of having to judge people's purity for worship and themselves having to become pure in order to do their work. Now, let me pause here and, and just share one reason why we've been slow to regather back into person, in person for worship. One of the things that has bothered me most about the pandemic is that we've been taught to look at everyone with suspicion. Strangers and loved ones included can be carriers. And so we look at them with suspicion. We keep our distance. And in many ways, this is the right and the best thing to do, right? To keep our distance, to, to know and to recognize that surfaces, people can be carriers of this potentially deadly disease. And so it's difficult to find this balance. It's been difficult for me to find this balance of loving people 
and yet at the same time helping to slow the disease or the spread of the disease while not going into like the full mode of everyone is a suspect. And for me, this has been a really difficult kind of reality to carry. And right now, as I sit here today, uh, Larimer County Health Department has given guidelines for worship gatherings, which include things like health screenings at the door. You know, like all the questions that you have to ask before you go to the doctor or dentist or get your hair cut. Uh, have you had a temperature? Have you gone out of the country? Do you have any of the following symptoms? We'd have to do that at the door. We would be asked to conduct these similar things where our greeters go from kind of greeting greeters to screeners. It sort of puts the church in a position of being a gatekeeper. And I'm not totally comfortable with that position. Um, it kind of goes against all that it, what it means to like gather for worship, in my opinion. And, and also like, being asked to churn people away, depending on that screening. And so we've been slow to gather in person again. And that's not to say that we, we won't get together soon. The first business of the newly elected board is to try and decide and discuss and discern when is the best time for us to begin gathering again. And to do so with all, all kinds of changes and cautions based on uh, COVID precautions. Um, but also wanting to protect the integrity that this is a church gathering open to all that would want to come and seek the Lord. And so in many ways, as I read these stories uh, about purity laws, I can certainly identify with where the people and the priests were at. Are you pure? Are you infected? Am I pure? Am I infected? And then having the church kind of see this role of, of gatekeeper. And as difficult as that has been for the modern church, for us to navigate, for a very long time, this was the understanding of how humanity interacted with God's holiness. That if you were infected with any impurity, you were kept out of worship because your impurity uh, posed a risk for the holiness of God. And to tell you the truth, I'm tempted to just leave it here and to let us sit with this discomfort and to feel the weight of our ancient brothers and sisters, the nation of God in ancient Israel. But given that we have a longer redemptive history of God upon which to reflect, I won't leave us hanging there. So the question becomes, what are we to make of all of this? Is God's holiness dangerous? And if that's the case, then why do we talk about being comforted by the presence of God? Are God's uh, holiness and our impurities incompatible? And if so, what hope do we have to commune with God in any meaningful way? Well, I'm reminded of a book that I've read out loud to both of my children called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. In this brilliant book, there are four siblings that discover a secret world called Narnia through the wardrobe of their uncle's house. Now, Narnia is under a spell of eternal winter by the wicked witch, but Aslan the lion is on the move to bring redemption to this land after being under the oppression of winter for so long. Now, upon hearing about Aslan, the two sisters, Susan and Lucy, ask their friend the beaver, they ask him, is he safe? And the beaver replies, 
Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Now, Lewis continues. He says, people who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. And if the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it by now. For when they tried to glimpse at Aslan's face, they caught a glimpse of his golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found they couldn't look at him. And they went all trembly. You see, in this powerful narrative, theologian and author C.S. Lewis is trying to capture a bit of these Old Testament texts. That God is good, but that doesn't mean that he's always safe. That if we aren't practicing ritual purity, no, given the fact that we aren't practicing ritual purity laws anymore, then what could we possibly mean by the character of God being terribly good? And again, having a longer history in mind, knowing more of the redemptive story of God, we have come to know through the revelation of Christ, who is the full revelation of God, that God's single disposition toward humanity is one of love. And the fullness of his holy presence is love. But that love can be dangerous if we choose not to receive it. Theologians throughout history have articulated this. And I'm not talking about a theology of, of, of hell as we might perceive it, but rather I want us to center in on the reality that God's single disposition and his holy character is one of love. Listen to what Isaac the Syrian has to say in the seventh century. He says this, Love is unquestionably given commonly to all. But love's power acts in two ways. It torments sinners, while at the same time delights those who have lived in accordance with it. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, he'll say, It is not God who is hostile, but we, for God is never hostile. And so God's holy love, which is pure love like the sun, but can also be dangerous if we choose not to receive it. God's holy love today, this moment for the church, is inviting us to forgive, to love our enemies, to help free the oppressed, to see the value in every life. And if we participate in this love, then we are in fact transformed by it. But if we refuse this love, we are in fact tormented by it. I want us to see this. I want us to capture this reality that God's holy presence in the world is like the rays of sun being brought out and the, the one disposition is one of love. And if we are ready to receive it, it will come across to us as warmth. But if we choose to run against it, it will feel like shards hitting us. You see, I've come to see and come to believe that the judgment of God is the love of God wrongly received. 
I think this is part of what the Apostle Paul is trying to get at in Romans chapter 12. Uh, Do you remember when he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God? For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Then later on he says, No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will be heaping burning coals upon their heads. So do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now we could take this one of two ways. Paul is giving us a pro tip of life on how to really torture our enemies and make them miserable by by loving them to death. Or he could be pointing us to the way of Jesus, loving our enemies and revealing to us that the, the deep truth that the wrath of God is the love of God that is wrongly received. Now, I know I've given us a lot to think about today. But what I want to do, and if you, have, you, you may have more questions than answers at this point, right? Uh, that this message may raise more questions than it provides even comfort. But today I want you to, to kind of rest in this, despite all the questions that maybe have come up. Rest and in, in, in find comfort in the reality that God's single disposition toward humanity is one of love. That may we live in the wave of God's love and be transformed by it. Because we will either receive God's love and be transformed by it, or refuse God's love and then be tormented by it. And then next week, what we're going to look at and what we'll see is that there's a couple of prophets, the prophet of Ezekiel and Isaiah, have visions, prophetic visions, that absolutely transform the trajectory of how we understand and interact and participate in God's holiness throughout the biblical narrative. So next week, I want you to tune in because it is, it is an absolute like hinge upon which our understanding of holiness must rest. So God bless you. God be with you. May you experience the warmth of his love this day.